This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. It's unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Hello and welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Regular listeners of this show will know I usually take the time to properly introduce my guests. I'll give you their career history, a sense of their expertise and areas of interest, and I usually headline a few of the topics we're about to dive into. Well, not this time. Listeners, for this episode, I'm going to let my guest story unfold before you without giving you any spoiler alerts. All I will tell you is that my guest is Mark Webb, and it was a genuine privilege to interview such a remarkable human being. We hear a lot lately about diversity in the workplace, about increasing levels of anxiety at work, and about the need for greater resilience. Well, you're not going to hear some theoretical analysis of these issues. Instead, this is a real-life story, a story that is unexpected, sometimes quite tragic, but ultimately uplifting. Just a quick footnote here. I know many listeners are not based in the UK, so for clarification... Dixon's Carphone is a retailer of technology products and services, which has around 36,000 employees and runs 900 stores in the UK and mainland Europe. David Lloyd Leisure 
is a provider of high-end health, sports and leisure clubs across the UK and Europe and employs around 8,000 people. So that said, without further ado, it is my privilege and my pleasure to bring you Mark Webb. So Mark, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. (laughs) So, first of all, I must say that when we spoke earlier, I realised that you had one of the most fascinating career routes into the whole world of PR and media relations. Can you tell us how you came to work in comms? And because I do know a little bit about this story, linked to this, of the many A-list celebrities that you've met along the way, who did you like the most and why? Aha. Okay. So you actually said roots in, into PR. I'd like to call it a stumble or a meander. <laughs> I left school and was universitying as a bit of a high flyer. It all came very easily to me. But I think the doubt, and I loved school and I played fairly high level rugby, bloody, bloody blah. But the downside is that left me without any kind of career, career plan because I expected it just to pan out. So in the meantime, I was one of those many people in the 80s, 90s who turned up in the Alps clutching a book called How to Work in Ski Resorts in Europe um, and spent a November knocking on hotel doors trying to get a job as a dishwasher and ended up actually um, getting my way into being a holiday rep and a ski rep for Ingham's in the winter in the mountains and Thompson's in a rather less glamorous places like Gran Canaria. And that was wonderful and it was a great fun, but that was not a career. You were never going to get promoted high up as a rep. You were going to meet lots of girls, drink lots of beer, do lots of silly excursions, but it wasn't going to take you anywhere. Great fun. My life happened to coincide with the opening of a place you may have heard of called Euro Disney, now Disneyland Paris, which opened in 1992. And I literally on the way down to another ski season in Gare du Nord, I was at the train station. I saw an ad uh, for interviews and took an impulse decision, went for an interview and landed a job. And I think really because I had been a holiday rep, I landed a job as essentially a posh holiday rep, except I was looking after A-list celebrities and major, major VIPs. And when you open a theme park in basically a new continent, that's what it was for Disney. They've since opened in, in China. When you open a new Disney theme park, the celebrities are uber A-list. I met my right. fair list of uh, fair list of Z listers as well, um, <laughs> but um, yes, some serious A listers. So throwaway names: Kevin Costner, Clint Eastwood, George Bush Senior, President Mitterrand, Gloria Estefan, Cher, Eddie Murphy, blah blah blah. I'll give you two answers really in terms of favourites. So my most astonishing experience was the three days I spent looking after Michael Jackson. Now, this was back in the 90s, so there hadn't been any of the scandals that we now know about. And the standard questions I got were, does he sleep in an oxygen tent? No, is the answer there. And was Bubbles with him? No, is the answer there. Seven cars, seven four-by-fours, picked him up off um, the private runway 
and I was in the lead car with him, his manager slash dad, and you know when we look back in retrospect, his uh, a couple of younger friends and a nanny, and then cars full of securities and managers and hangers on and oh my word, just an astonishing whirlwind wow. of education about a list and then something else above that when Michael Jackson really had no no reality since he was four or five I came yes. to appreciate in, mm. in terms of favorites most definitely Gloria Estefan and I say that because most of these very famous celebrities tend to be very nice because they can use their intermediaries their agents or their managers as the tough ones who insist no, oh. they don't want the blue smarties or you know they have to have the crusts off their white bread or whatever so the argy bargy came from the managers gloria estefan was just this superstar on stage and we we had a show she was part of the opening entertainment on april 12th 1992 but off stage, she instantly became a mum and a wife. So I, I spent time with her young son. I think he was about 11 now. I think he tried to get in acting. I'm not sure how well he went. And her very talented husband, who was really very much part of the, the music machine and, and uh, everything that came with Gloria Estefan. And she was so humble that after the couple of days I spent with her and, and very personal contact and just chatting away and fun and laughter and just humanity, she kissed me on the cheek, which is not <laughs> hero worship. It's just that she would deign to do that to a lowly me. And she also invited me out to Miami. Now, I never took her up on that offer because I knew it was she was just saying it to be nice, but just to have having that offer made to be was wonderful and I'm still in touch with her now on Twitter particularly because I know we're going to lead on to illness but her father or mother had the same illness as I've got so just a, a, a very special person and I'm, I'm, I remain a huge fan. So further on in the, in your career then there wasn't much you must have come across in terms of difficult journalists or leaders you were well prepared for any of that. You'd already dealt with the most difficult people on the planet or their teams, I suppose, being very difficult. That must have been great preparation. I think it was. Of course, that wasn't PR I was doing, but this is how I really did stumble into communications as a career because with this entourage and with their presence in the park and around the hotels and in Paris, there would always be TV crews and radio interviews and, and journalist meetings so this is where I started to experience it and fall in love with the whole idea of it. Um, and yes, you're right, actually, because I saw them as, uh, in a sense, I thought I, I felt some of the journalists were, you know, intimidated or, or gobsmacked by speaking to Clint Eastwood or uh, Michael Jackson. So I never felt that journalists were this scary, awful beast. Um, and, and I really wanted to work with them. Uh, and I found that when you work with them in partnership rather than this fear of or looking up to or begging all these things that uh, are traps you can fall into, it, it all it all felt very cosy to me. And indeed, as I started working in comms, um, one of our hotels burnt down, fortunately, with no serious injuries. But I was exposed as a, at a very junior age to 
dealing with the international press and, and got my name in the New York Times. And golly, as a 20-something-year-old, I was very excited about that. Before we move on from Disney, though, I thought we should just pause on Disney for a moment. I mean, they pretty much wrote the book when it comes to developing a massively profitable, sustainable brand. They are the case study that everyone holds up. And I'm just wondering from your time there, are there lessons that you think other organisations can learn about how to really develop a fantastic world-class brand over the long term? Yes. I was so caught up in the magic and I think that's part of it. So I, I, I think if we could think about the internal comms side of it, it was, I think, two lessons on that side of the magic was seeing senior manu- management very visible, very hands-on, very involved, very excited by the, by the same roller coasters and parades and fireworks that I was. I remember, uh, you may have heard of a, a gentleman called Jeffrey Katzenberg. He was second in command or third in command at Disney at the time, and he headed up the animation team. And I looked after him just before opening. And I can remember very well walking him and his family into the park for a test meal in one of the restaurants. And he went out of his way to pick up some rubbish that he saw on the floor. Um, And this would be a multimillionaire. No need to do that. Maybe doing it just for my benefit or for anybody else who saw it. But I don't care. That was just a perfect example. Now, Jeffrey Katzenberg is a bit of an ass. Let's face it. <laughs> um, he's gone on to, he founded DreamWorks after this, and he's just failed with um, the, that, that short form communications things, Queeby, that's gone bust just recently. But an um, incredibly talented person. And he just made a great example there. And so just in letting cast members, because that's what I was a cast member, letting a cast member see and, and share the magic with senior people, um, that, that was huge. And then secondly, again, in in terms of, I guess it was internal comms and I wasn't really aware of it. Just let us be part of it. My favourite film of all the Disney films is Beauty and the Beast. Now, that's partly because it came out in 1992, exactly as I was starting to fall in love with Disney, but also because they let us see it a couple of weeks before. And Mm. just the magic, again, I was a 20-something, just to be able to see a film before it came out. The excitement mm. you can build around it. And not everybody can have castles and fireworks and, and A-list celebrities, but there, there must surely be with most products up there, times that you could share with your employees more than discounts, just time with senior management, product launches, sneaky news coming out there, that kind of just you're part of the team. You're, we're in this together. I know I earn millions more than you because I'm the CEO, etc. But just be part of the magic. Mm. And then in terms of the brand, I think what I've admired from Disney from then, but just since then, is never being happy with where they were. They've moved on. And after I left, they bought Pixar. They, they, they were in partnership making Toy Story, etc. Sometimes a very fractious partnership, but they realized that Pixar could add the magic. Since then, they bought Star Wars and the Marvel Universe. They've just kept moving on. Uh, and I see the same with the fireworks when I go back. They're all very um, special effects. They keep moving on. They, they know they're the best now, but they want to be the best next year too. 
So after Disney, you were head of comms at David Lloyd Leisure and then became head of media relations at Dixon's Carphone. So much of your career has been spent managing external media relations. Are there lessons from that world, things you did back then that you think could be applied to the world of internal comms? Yes, I think, but particularly in the modern world, I think there's a huge crossover because we're 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 so often using the same channels to to say different things to the same audiences, same things to different audiences, etc. So um, I was actually responsible for internal comms at David Lloyd Leisure. There was a little bit of the same of the Disney thing of, of sharing the magic with, with the senior team. So when all the team went off and did triathlons and I was doing triathlons every year, the CEO or the MD was doing that with us. Uh, um, if you had a meeting in a club, um, you knew very well that if you wanted to get there half an hour earlier, you'd meet the MD on the treadmill next to you and have a little private chat. So it was a very visible management system. I think that works for any kind of comms. Um, But in terms of internal comms at the time, that was very traditional and very outdated now. It It was the monthly magazine and a weekly communication about what you should do with this treadmill delivery and uh, and change in menus, etc. So it, it was a very staid way of internal comms. And, and I have to admit that I didn't move it on in any way whatsoever. Moving on to um, Dixon's Carfax. Well, it was Dixon's Retail. We then moved, uh, we, we saw off the um, recession, the 2008 downturn, and we merged with Carphone Warehouse to become Dixon's Carphone to huge events in retail to cope with and to enjoy it's always good i've always loved a crisis i've always (laughs) loved um things falling apart because i think that if you do it well you're 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 really in the room with the most senior of management and they're often flapping and you're the one you're the calm one at the center of the storm um telling them to take a breath telling them to step back giving them guidance. I think that's where we earn our bucks, the, 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 yes. the, the crisis and the issue management. Somebody has to have the cool head. And also somebody has to give that advice to step back for a moment, breathe, think about it, don't that, fly from the hip. That, that, that's right. It also could be exhaustion when it's, <laughs> when, yes. it's a, when it's a sort of 72-hour crisis and you get hardly any sleep and you don't know when the next journalist is going to call or next twist is going to come. But um, back to your question about comms that we could learn from. As I was working with Dixon's, as social media was, you know, we, we were all playing Farmville on Facebook, weren't we, 100 years ago? But there wasn't really much of a comms realization about it you were all just hooking up with ex-girlfriends and and people from school and family etc of course everything's moved on now and there's there's twitter and youtube and and various channels that internally and externally everybody to an extent is using them more or less and that's certainly something i found through working uh, at, at dixon's we had a CEO called Sebastian James. He's now the CEO of Boots. But when he joined us, he was he had various senior directorial roles and he started a Twitter account. He called it Dixon's Ops. He didn't keep make it very public, but he was very quickly found by um, store colleagues 
um, and they loved the fact that they could talk direct to Seb. That's how he was called. And he loved the fact that he could hear direct from the coalface without store managers, area managers, making sure the store was all very pretty and you know, the, the old story about the queen only smelling, smelling fresh paint. He could yes. get the unvarnished truth. And so that worked very magically. For There were a couple of thousand store colleagues were connected with Seb before he, he became really known in any way externally. There was the odd journalist who also had hooked onto him there and just found it fascinating and as an insight into, again, the unvarnished truth. They never went for it as a... Um, let's you know unveiling some nasty secrets they just think wow okay i understand this bit about uh logistics and the warehouses that how they deal with shortages how they deal with sales etc etc so it gave people a fascinating and again unvarnished sight insight into uh, the working of a workings of a big retailer so you're sort of mid-career and it sounds like you've had you know one success really after another and then all of a sudden, 2007, you get what must have been a massively traumatic and certainly life-changing news at that point. Tell us about that and how you reacted, the stages that you went through as you were coming to grips with that diagnosis. It's all so interlinked in my memory. So you talk about success. I, I, I talk about fun, really. Um, <laughs> I love it. Because, um, you know, ski rep running around with celebrities, learning my PR craft, that was great. But it was it was at a relatively junior level. And I just went through till um, 1999, just having fun, just the time of my life. And then a second time of my life happened in that I met my wife in 1999 and realized I needed to grow up to, to, to really deserve her. She's an amazingly talented and beautiful lady and a wonderful mum. I really needed to to get going. And that's when I ended up at David Lloyd Leisure and then at Dixon's going for more senior roles, but still enjoying it. In retrospect, I'd had little touchy symptoms since 1992, the year we launched Disney. Actually, it wasn't till 2007 that I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is a, a neurological disease. So that means it's in my brain and, and actually my, my spinal cord, which is a horrible thought. I, I, I can't stand it. <laughs> I, I see scans of my brain and it looks, I've got, uh, looks like I've got lumps of cotton wool in it. It's an autoimmune disease, which is one where your immune system gets confused and attacks yourself. And in MS's case, it is your nerves, your, your central nervous system. And of course, your nerves spread out all over your body. So wherever the illness and the random attacks happen in MS, you can be impacted. So there's a, I've got a whole smorgasbord of symptoms I can choose from. And, and sadly, I've got most of them. My MS is quite advanced. But when we got to 2007, I'd had a dodgy bladder for a while. I was starting to stagger on my left foot when I'd been running those triathlons at David Lloyd Leisure. I was sometimes stumbling in my speech and um, getting extremely fatigued. And I was just starting to become aware that on bad, tired days, I looked like I was, I was drunk. And actually, I wasn't, honestly. 
so uh, my wife and I, we, we, we figured finally something was up and I went to visit a neurologist and a urologist and it took them, it's a very complex disease, so it took about three, four months, which is actually relatively fast to get diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Some people, when they're diagnosed with MS, are relieved because they've had these weird symptoms for years and they, they've finally got a name to the, the strangeness going, going on. Some people are absolutely devastated because it can uh, run in families and they know how tough it can be. Um. Me, I was numb was was my first reaction and so there was a bit of numbness and a bit of denial I think so I in a sense carried on my wife can remember very vividly uh, we were with our first son at a picnic picnic just looking at me thinking oh my word where are we headed in life me I, I was just carrying on almost as normal but there was some numbness in physical terms and numbness in in the way I was treating the illness. In terms of stages of grief, I never I've never been through the anger bit. I think because I feel lucky in everything that I've experienced and done, and who I've met, and who I'm in love with, um, as well as my wife, obviously. Denial happened, grief happened, and acceptance. And I'm I'm mostly in the acceptance stage all the time now. Sadly, MS is progressive. Mm. You don't know how fast it's going to progress. So there are times when I take dips because, um, you know, I have to move from a walking stick to a rollator, you know, like a Zimmer frame. And I'm now in a wheelchair. The, the, those, are t- those are tough moments. And at that point, I, I, I take some counselling, drink a couple of tequilas and I move on and it's fine again. So numb bit of confusion acceptance mm. that's roughly how I went I'm, I'm going to dig into this a bit more later in the conversation but there is a question that's just come into my mind as you were talking and this might sound like a strange question the fact that you were so active and sporty and obviously very fit before this happened I mean few of us do regular triathlons does that make it harder or easier so do you look back and think gosh I had that and at least I did have that or are you more aware of the things you can't do and won't be able to do in the future? I don't know if that's a weird question. That's not a weird question at all. And I think that's that's something that an awful lot of people with my illness and similar, similar-ish ones like um, Parkinson's as a, as a good example or motor neurone disease, that one that progresses very, very fast. Um, and it, it is very easy to look back with regret. I look back with pride and happiness and gratitude <laughs> we've had some adventures in our life uh, my wife and I uh, within six months of meeting each other we burned down our flat in Paris and lost everything um, except the clothes we were wearing uh, and and the daffodils we brought back to put into our window boxes that was all we were left with and the upside of that was that we got an insurance payout and uh, we had a wonderful wedding and we decided to take six months honeymoon. Wow. Um, to, it, it, this all happened in 1999. First kiss, January, burned a house down mid-year, married in December. Um, <laughs> we wanted to end, end that year on a positive when it had been really tough. So I've got, you know, there's lots of people thinking, oh, I wish I'd travelled or there's other people, you know, in, in 
who are approaching retirement age saying, yes, I'm going to quit my job and buy a yacht or whatever they are thinking. Well, I've done that. I, I've spent six months with the love of my life in Southeast Asia. So uh, I have very few regrets. And um, I guess one regret would be that um, I didn't know how helpful exercise would be to slow down progress of my MS. So when I was in that denial phase and staggering a bit, I really wasn't exercising enough. And maybe I, I would have been just that little bit fitter now had mm. I kept exercising. But I've changed all that now. I work very hard on my exercising while all of us are watching so much Netflix and Disney Channel and Disney Plus and whatever else um, in uh, lockdown. Well, I'm doing that, but I'm doing that by while lifting weights at the same time. <laughs> and while I can't do it right now, in normal times, so to speak, I play wheelchair rugby. So there's a positive there. I'm 52 and I'm playing a bit of a bonkers contact sport. Had I not been disabled, I would not be playing a contact sport anymore. Yeah. So I do I wish I, ha I didn't have MS? Bloody hell, yes, I wish I didn't have MS. But I've got it. But I love my wife. I've got two wonderful children. I still have a career. I get to talk to lovely people like yourself. I get to campaign. I get to get people thinking, I, oh, life goes on and life is okay. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about inspiration, but I'm not going there just yet because I want the story of how Dixon's car phone reacted to your diagnosis because I think it's a powerful story of employee advocacy that lasts long after somebody actually leaves an organisation. Would that be fair? Absolutely. So I've worked for, I think, Disney you can't get many more exciting brands than Disney. David Lloyd Leisure has its own appeal, doesn't it? You know, health and fitness and, you know, hunky, hunky men and women doing sporty stuff and lovely swimming pools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I went to join Dixon's, partly because they were offering a decent package. It was more senior and it was down the road. I wasn't particularly excited about selling washing machines. And actually, when I got there, I just fell in love one I enjoyed retail didn't expect to but two I just discovered how important a team was and never more so than when I was diagnosed so on the day of diagnosis I phoned up work and said look do you mind if I don't come in for a couple of weeks the answer was of course yes by the time I got back a couple of weeks later the team had educated themselves via social media and contacts as to what I might be experiencing and going through. Wow. So they were, um, there's no perfect way to deal with a, a person who's being diagnosed with something bad. Some people don't know how to talk to you. Some people are scared of talking to you. Some people are desperate to talk to you when you don't want to. So it's, it wasn't perfect, but it was as close as you possibly could get in terms of the empathy as opposed to the sympathy that I don't want, but the empathy and, you know, the giving me space when I needed it, letting me moan when I wanted to, just wonderful. But then moving on, as I moved from that vaguely walking drunk to properly walking drunk, to walking with a walking stick, to then coming in on my first day with a wheelchair, they remained brilliant. Nobody looked up. They were probably being very good and very focused on not doing so, but they were wonderful. 
Um, but I was also struggling to fulfill my job as the senior comms person. I couldn't really get into London. I certainly couldn't do long hours in a crisis. I couldn't drink heavily with the journalists, which is part of the deal with, you know, with certain journalists. There was a moment that came when I guess another organisation could have given me the guilty check. There, there, Mark, off you go into retirement, poor old you, blah, blah, blah. They did exactly the opposite. They called me into a room. I don't think I feared that, but I did fear something. And, and essentially, they said in a very nice way, look, Mark, this is really tough for you, but we don't want you to leave. We want to work with you to create a role that will continue to help the organisation, but will help you cope and stay working. And parallel to that, Twitter and so on had been growing fast. And I'd been talking to the same journalists who I'd been drinking with in previous years on social media every day. And we decided to create a role uh, which was head of group social media. So it wasn't all the fun marketing stuff. It was talking to those same journalists and working with the Seb that we talked about before, who was still very keen on Twitter to grow his following and to grow the company's tone of voice on social media. So I had to go home again. So diagnosis sent me home upset. The way they dealt with me there, and by the way, they let me work part-time but kept the salary. Um, wow. I had to go home in tears just because I was so moved. <laughs> um, so um, it, was, it was just wonderful. It was win-win. So um, yeah. the company developed a voice which not many companies did at the time in corporate terms I, I brought my mine a combination of Seb's and my voices to the corporate feed I nagged Seb to tweet in his own voice I would encourage any senior leader to be active on social media and there's some stats out there about how much more trusted companies are when they see um when they see their leaders or see company leaders on social media. But I would discourage leaders to have someone tweet for them. So yes. I would often talk to Seb about what he might tweet, uh, or I would hear that he was visiting a store and I would sort of nudge him in the kidneys and say, make sure you take a selfie with the team, they'll be so happy, or a new fixture or a new opening or whatever. And I did suggest tweets to him, but it would, he would always put them in his own tone of voice. And he's very eloquent and uh, witty and humble. And so we got some Seb tweets. We got some Mark Webb tweets. We got some corporate tweets. And on things like results days, you could actually see the, the standard, you know, happy to report X percent up, blah, 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 on the official release. But you would also have a version of those com tweets coming out from me, from Seb and from the corporate feed. And newspapers would actually pick them up and put those tweets on their front cover. So it gave us another little tweak of an angle on, on the things that we would like to be recorded and, and reported and other bits that we'd like to be ignored. It was a wonderful way of adding to our communications channels. You can pick that up completely, can't you, and use exactly the same methodology on your internal channels. It works exactly the same way it must do, as long as you say it's in people's own genuine voice and we're not fabricating that authenticity, if you could even try to do that. 
Yes. Yeah. I, you know, again, I, I wish I could roll out stats and I can blame my MS for forgetting numbers. But um, the amount of um, future employees or would be employees or young people who are using social media and part of their research into a company will be what are they up to on social media? And then that going back to that trust from their leaders, seeing them talking in the same way that they do. You know, Seb was he took awful photos, but it was the natural <laughs> side of things that I'm not talking about him as looks. He was just fuzzy and rubbish with his photography, yes. but it was just the natural nature of things that, that made him so popular with 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 his teams, the people who reported to him and they felt they could talk to him personally and journalists and peers and competitors, everything else. Social media is a comms tool it's an internal comms tool because your employees are there and am i right in thinking you were then instrumental in making him the most followed ceo in the FTSE 100 at the time so the equivalent of the dow jones for any listeners that aren't in the uk well i like to think so um in the sense that i've seen him move on to boots and he tweets a little bit less now so um, given it was his natural voice no i'm not going to take all the credit but I am going to take the credit for nagging him and reminding him that it was a tool that we could use. And as a team, it certainly worked. And there, there are a couple of journalists. It's three years since I've left Dixon's. And there's a couple of journalists and, and other uh, writers in, in the sphere of retail who still uh, know I've left, but they still think of me as the Dixon's bloke in a good mm. way. And talking of that, you know, if we end my story of my MS journey with, with Dixon's, it was about three years ago when I, I, I felt that I really couldn't cope anymore with that senior role and that intenser role, the group social media role. And I went to them and said, look, I, I really feel it. it's time I leave. And again, they could have just given my whatever month's notice and say, yeah, we understand. Thanks very much. Uh, and I'm afraid they were quite a lot more generous than that. And the upshot of all those experiences, my diagnosis, my uh, change of role a few years later, a couple of years later, and my departure, all under different bosses and di with different teams, and a lot of those have moved on, still means that three years on, I'm this huge advocate for Dixon's, or Dixon's car phone. I just think employee advocacy like that, as opposed to, you know, there's a large um, uh, online e-tailer, um, I think we've all used in lockdown, um, <laughs> who um, who are rumoured to have paid some of their warehouse workers to say nice things. That, to me, isn't employee advocacy. I can see why they've done it, but authenticity is the way to go. It's authenticity. It's the story, though, isn't it, as well? It's the fact that there is this really compelling, interesting, moving story at the heart of what you're talking about. And you said on LinkedIn, you know, you, you probably do so much for their, for their brand and their brand reputation, for talent acquisition, as you say. And I think it's so interesting to think about employee advocacy as those alumni. I think that's so interesting, something that often gets forgotten. That's one thing that had a huge impact and led to my, the various career strands that I've got now is when I did leave, and I do like writing authentically as well, as opposed to a very planned communication. 
So I'm probably not as strategic as you. You're probably all grown up and stuff. Um, <laughs> but um, I like firing stuff out. I do check for spellings generally. But, you know, beyond that, uh, I write instinctively. And on leaving Dixon's, maybe a week afterwards, I wrote a, a eulogy to Dixon's, essentially. And I ended it, be like Dixon's car phone. And that went viral and it, uh, it got nearly 900,000 views wow. on LinkedIn. That led me down the path to, to, to the various bits and bobs that I'm doing. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, LinkedIn is a power, I think is growing as a tool as well. Um, maybe because more people are looking for jobs at the moment, but it does <laughs> feel that um, LinkedIn is a, is a more and more powerful tool for all we bitch about it. It's interesting. We had somebody called Keith Lewis from Zurich who heads up social media there. And he actually, he'd calculated the difference between when an employee posted content and when corporate Zurich posted almost the same content. And the reach was something like four or five, six times as more when a real person had tweeted that content. So I think it's just, it is human beings, we're just more likely to connect with another human being. I mean, it could, could just be that potentially, I guess. Yes, uh, yes, it's the trusted voice thing, isn't it? You know, um, for all, you know, a PLC will be known to spin things. You know, I'm afraid that's our jobs, isn't it? it, it you know, we spin can be a horrible word but there, there's there's some truth in it isn't there you, you you tell people what you want them to hear you don't tell them so you're not yeah. lying but you, you you tell versions of the truth i still follow the dixon's results and when they when they're not good i don't share them <laughs> when they're good i will put up you know pleased to see my ex-colleagues hard work is paying off brilliant that they're changing in the pandemic whatever you know those kind of words and then I just put out the one of the news articles that I've that that is favourable, um, and and I get ten to fifteen thousand views on LinkedIn, and I know that three or four thousand of those are Dixon's colleagues. Yes. So I'm I'm having an internal comms role for them. They, they owe me cake at some point. They I keep <laughs> a really nice cake. Tell us about Shift.ms where you are head of comms now, what's the mission of that organisation? Well, it, it's evolved. So um, Shift.ms was founded um, 11 years ago in the UK. It's now a global uh, organisation in English, so predominantly in English-speaking areas, so huge in the US, Canada, Australia, etc. It was founded by George who, when he was diagnosed with MS, you're diagnosed in general between the age of 20 and 40, but your worst symptoms, they might not emerge at all because it's a very, very disease, but they often emerge later in life. So when he was trying to find like-minded people to talk to and um, get some understanding of what he was going to go through or what he was going through, just chat, he really couldn't find the right outlet to engage. You know, I'm, I'm 52 now. I, I, I'm sure... 25-year-old or 30-year-old George wouldn't have wanted to engage with me in a wheelchair. So he founded Shift.ms really to talk to young people who are diagnosed with, with multiple sclerosis. And it's a social network. It's a social network for good um, because it just answers every question for MSers. Since being initially for young people, it's for all MSers. You know, a lot of us have been using it for a decade now. It's particularly important for the newly diagnosed, though, because that's when you're 
Googling, you know, Dr. Mm. Google is telling you you're going to be dead in 10 minutes or whatever. You need some positive role models and people to talk to and say, look, I've got a tingly little toe. Should I be worried? All, all these strange things that, that we experience. So it's essentially a social network for people with MS and people related to, carers of, etc. Because, well, as my wife always likes to say, it's our MS. And it's right. true, I, I have a huge impact on her life. Um, and we try not for her not to be my carer, but essentially the, the, a large part of her life is because I can't make a cup of tea anymore. Or I could make a cup of tea, but I'd spill half of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a, a wonderful social network network for MSs, and what I love, having come from you know Disney entertainment industry, is we produce very high content educational films, fiction, you know, but based in fact and based in we want to get this message across. And some of the film, the short films, sort of award winning and ten minutes long. Oh my word, they have me in tears and moved oh, really? and, and provoked. Uh, Oh, golly, yes. Okay, we need links. I will. Be, there will be links, guys, in the show notes, I promise you. Oh, yeah, there's... Uh, yes, brilliant. Um, if I could talk to you about two wonderful films. One's called Gallop. It's a bit of a love story about a chap who is diagnosed just as he's falling in love. And there's the conflict of him thinking, do I want to impose this on this beautiful girl? Etc. And so that's that still moves me to tears when I see it. It's wonderful, and it tries to explain diagnosis. There's a, the edgiest one we've ever done is called Sidecar, and it's it's about a motorcycle motorbike racer. It's probably a better word for it, but um, who has got who is starting to have the experience of advanced MS, and it's edgy and it's witty and it's to the background of motorbike racing and oh yeah. We, you know, how can, how can you make a, a horrible disease cool and sexy? Well, we do. But that's another lesson for all of us, isn't it? What interesting creative angle can we tell this story from rather than just face to camera reading what the equivalent of a press release? How can we move people with this story and create a real story with a beginning and a middle and an end and still get all our points across? So that's another great lesson there, I think. Absolutely. There's definitely a time and a place for big charity appeals for live aid for all those things but you know as well as fundraising and and everything that is necessary to keep charities going and the people affected by poverty and illness and famine and prejudice and all these other things there's also an education piece that needs to be done and that that's an area where shift.ms is exceptionally strong and it doesn't have to be hammered into someone you can get the subtle messages across very strongly if you get the right channel and the right content and those films mm. blimey they're good thank you for sharing that i'm also wondering about building an active supportive online community are there any principles or rules or is it the lack of rules i'm not sure that help foster that kind of community that kind of environment I, I watch some very successful communicators in my particular disability, but it, across the spectrum of of disability and indeed diversity, because I campaign across the lot really now. Some of them I would pull up on not engaging 
I, I think it's very important to have interesting content to, uh, I, I'll go back to the word authenticity, that's incredibly key to me, but there's some I would pull up on just putting out nice stuff, but I think they could be so much more helpful, help, helpful. <laughs> that's, that's my, I, again, I can blame MS when I say helpful instead of helpful. I think you could really lift people so much more by engaging with them. And that takes time. I accept that. But I try very hard to answer pretty much everything that anybody gets in touch with me. And I'm only, you know, I, I, I am fairly power, powerful in multiple sclerosis. That's the wrong word. But I am well listened to in, in multiple sclerosis. And there are busier people than me. But I'm still trying to engage with people, trying to empathize, trying to ask questions, trying to support what other people are doing rather than just willy-waving. You also have a great blog. Again, link in the show notes, guys, One Man and His Catheters. There was one post where you, you did use the term inspiration porn. You wrote in that blog, I do try so very hard to make others pause and think for a moment or three. And I realise that can take us smoothly into inspiration territory. Uh, So I hadn't actually heard that phrase, inspiration porn, but I kind of know what you mean by it. And it feels like it's one of those double-edged swords, right? Who wouldn't want to be inspirational? But also, is it a curse as well? Tell us about how you feel about being called inspirational. Yeah, there's the challenge. I, I probably don't go a day without being told I'm inspirational. But my challenge there with it is that I'm being called inspirational sometimes just because I'm smiling, just because I'm still doing a bit of work, just because I've raised a couple of quid. Is that inspirational because I got out of bed? Well, it shouldn't be. There are some newspapers, and I won't name them, but I think we can guess them, but would have us be seen as scroungers. Whereas statistically, it's a tiny percentage of the poor or the disabled or whatever who are scroungers. It's a tiny amount, but they're the ones who are flagged. The rest of us are trying our damnedest to get on with life and love and happiness and earn money when we're capable. Is that inspirational or is that just us trying our best? So it's 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 really hard and you know you see the paralympics and every four years everybody says for a couple of weeks golly aren't those disabled people amazing then they start forgetting about it and then they start giving us funny looks you know when we have a stagger or we 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 look young in a wheelchair or somebody's dribbling because of a disease or has a Tourette's or there's a view of a disabled person that they are sidelined from society and out of sight out of mind except for two weeks there there lies the, the duality really is i want to make people think i don't really mind being called inspirational because i do do ridiculous things you know calling my blog one man and his catheters immediately gets people thinking i think um trying to portray my existence humorously 
is a little bit of a defense mechanism because when I talk about catheters or constipation or whatever else has gone on in my life it, it, it's hard so so humor is a way of I can deliver it by um, but get away with it um, but I do do really ridiculous things because I'm an adrenaline junkie um, so I fall out of planes I um, did a Tough Mudder last year where I was essentially a sack of potatoes being carried over by 10, 15 people over. And I I couldn't do a single one of the obstacles and I did every single one. And I was shattered. And after about the third, I nearly threw up. But I I achieved all of them. I've raised, I I think I've raised about £20,000 for charity. So I'm not not really in Captain um, Tom Moore's territory, but I do my bit. So fine if i have to be inspirational that is a one word thing but if i could do one thing it would be you're so thought provoking that that's what i want people to i pe- want people to wake up and realize that i'm normal just like other people who wear pink shirts are and people who have a nose piercing or like to listen to 60s pop or whatever we're all different but but we're also normal and also just going back on something you've said trying our best sometimes is all you need to do to be inspirational we don't all have to climb Everest or appear in the Paralympics but sometimes just trying our best you know that's that's not bad yes no I I I agree with you there I've only got two rules for my we've got two boys I've only got two rules for them. One is be one of the good guys and two, try your best or work hard. And so so then I'm not going to be judgmental on exam results as long as I know they put the, the, the work in because we're not all going to be Picasso. We're not all going mm. to invent something that will take us to Mars. I don't know if you listen to Tim Hartford, more or less. We will put the show the, the links in the show notes. There was a discussion on his programme this week about whether it's true that one in five people in the UK are disabled. And he looked into that stat and it's absolutely true in terms of a physical or mental impairment that stops people from engaging in everyday activities. So that's how they define it. And it's actually higher in parts of the U- other parts of the UK. If you just if you break up Ireland and, and Wales, for example, because of slightly more ageing population, you talk about oh, that, that this being the biggest minority group, the sort of the most marginalised and the most forgotten. I'm just wondering why that is, and is there something we, as communications professionals, can do? One of the things that really resonated with me when you, we spoke earlier in this conversation about your colleagues educating themselves and I and I thought to myself you know that's what black lives matter actually and this is a very different subject but that was a whole education exercise for a lot of people like me that aren't black actually it was a moment of pause and reflection and reading and finding out things I didn't really know so that's this is the very the longest question I've ever asked in the history of this show sorry but what can we do to play our part in yes in stopping this being a forgotten and marginalized massive minority group firstly i think i think you've landed on it straight away is realizing that we with it we exist as a group so so on days when i'm not feeling um i'm not feeling on, on best form i have been known to, to to turn into a bit of a keyboard warrior and track down all these companies that are announcing their diversity 
strategies for the next five years. There's some really good stuff happening in, I'm not talking about disability per se, but DNI, but there's also some tick box stuff going on. I'm very aware of that. Sometimes I feel bad for calling people out and, and I know they're comms people and they announce their groundbreaking strategy and there's on their seven page document, there's not a single mention of disability. And I tweet back at them and, and it all goes silent for 24 hours. And I know that this comms huddle going on and I've caused it. <laughs> but I think um, there it, it would be very handy for um, the comms industry and senior management to um, accept that we exist as a community, even if sometimes we don't identify as a community. And that's, I think, one of the problems for us as, as um, disabled people is that you're right, one in five of us are disabled. A lot of those don't recognize themselves as disabled, um, you know, uh, severe asthmatics or if they're deaf or who knows what i i can remember certainly you know from the day i was diagnosed i i, I assume i was officially di disabled but i can remember two or three years later i was in a costa coffee and i knew i wouldn't be able to carry my coffee back to the table without spill spilling it and for the first time i said look do you mind carrying my coffee i'm slightly disabled and i couldn't bring myself to say the word disabled Wow. So we could help ourselves by be, becoming a more coherent group. And uh, yes, Black Lives Matter was, was, was a big wake-up call for all ethnicities. Here's another word I definitely can't say with, with MS. It was awful what, had to lead, what led to Black Lives Matter, but uh, I, I happen to be a huge supporter of it. It really brought the community together, not, not just a the black community but BAME it was a wonderful push forward in 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 their course and that's got years to to run you know it, we're not all suddenly understanding and they're not all on an equal footing just like the disabled community so it, sorry that was a long-winded answer to your long-winded question so I think the, the two things would be for leadership and comms to treat every discussion on diversity including disabled we're the last lgbt gender ethnicity they deservedly need a shout but so does disability on my side um i don't think you'd have to be as loud and talk about catheters um, as I do, but um, we could probably sometimes help ourselves as, as recognizing ourselves as disabled and galvanizing each other um, as a group, even though our, our flavor of disabilities are just vast. In one of your posts, you write, I am determined to make the world a better place and it gets me out of bed every day. If I can give people one good thought, change one opinion, inspire one more bonkers fundraising scheme, I'll remain the happy chappy in a wheelchair and get out of bed tomorrow. So my question is, and it's a little bit philosophical, but when I first landed on your blog, there's a, there's a big line at the front that says, I was born lucky and smiling. And so I wondered, has MS changed you as a human being? Or do you think your nature's your nature, 
and that's just carried on. Maybe it's accentuated certain aspects of your character or has this actually more in a deeper philosophical way changed you and your outlook on the world and your values even? Yeah, it, it is that nature versus nurture thing, isn't it? And and it's probably both. So I think I was born lucky and being born lucky, being born with a, I think, born with a positive temperament has helped me cope with burning my house down. Um, a, um, a, a diagnosis with um, a one of the worst chronic Ill- illnesses out there. It's got more suicides than um, I think cancer, and more. It's a it's it's a really tough disease, and I think most of it's down to anxiety because you don't know how fast and how far and how bad it's going to be. Um, but it's 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 a really tough illness. Um, and and um, I lost my sister a couple of years ago. Um, she passed away a couple of years younger than me. Um, so I, I've had some tough calls in life, but I, I've remained happy. I've had some tough moments. <laughs> um uh, but no ms and other stuff has changed me my my wife got me I, I still continue to have fun but i found a purpose i found a duty in life i the, the my wedding vows cut right through me in in a good way and i i realized that i needed to be a wonderful well as good as i could be let's say not wonderful but as good as i could be for my wife from then on then the diagnosis, after I got used to it, I think it gave me two things. It gave me a real strength of purpose. I is such a MS is such a complex disease. Um, there are, and there'll be a, an MSer on here who'll, who'll be listening somewhere who'll be disappointed that I say there won't be a cure in my lifetime. But it is very unlikely. Um, medications are, are progressing wonderfully, um, but there's unlikely to be a cure in my lifetime. What I want to do is, for my generation, further understanding and further support, such as through shift.ms, but through that campaign for more money to be raised, more medical professionals to get involved in MS and other similar or not so similar illnesses, so that a cure is there down the line. I'm thinking about my children and my grandchildren. I want there to be less disease, less illness, less poverty, less prejudice. Well, I promise this is the last question before those quick fire questions. I just want to ask a little question about anxiety, because I think we live in an anxious age. I think we were just talking about this today as our senior management team about The anxiety that I think so many people are feeling right now for so many different reasons, whether it's income insecurity, whether it's unemployment, whether it's being socially distanced from the ones we love, whether it's the distraction of social media and the difficulty we find in kind of just finding the headspace to can't be calm. Do you have any advice for anyone who's feeling particularly anxious as someone who deals with potentially the most you know, anxiety provoking. I can't think of anything more anxiety provoking than having the kind of disease like MS. But do you have any advice to us? When I when I do have counselling, uh, one of my coping mechanisms, uh, and my counsellors pull me up because one of my ways is of coping is um, saying to myself and um, to others that 
there's always worse out there. I know I don't live in Syria. I'm not going to be imminently bombed. I'm not living through famine. I've hopefully got a longish life ahead of me, etc. So that's one of my coping mechanisms, but I don't think that's for everyone. My ways of coping are getting control of the bits of my life that I can control. So I work hard when I can. Social media is important to me, particularly because I've been locked down for 11 months, but, you know, by MS... I haven't fully been locked down, but I have limited um, lifestyle opportunity. Let's put it that way. So um, I control my social media in the sense of making sure I don't spend hours and hours on it. It's very important to me. But also I cut out your Piers Morgans and your Donald Trump, those negative factors that are in social media. So I go for supportive and or entertaining areas of social media. Um, that will will enrich me, not 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 um, bring me down and worry me, etc. Um, so social media, I use it in a controlled sense. Mm. Uh, I, I work hard, and I've got my purpose that that keeps me going because I can help others, even if I can't help myself so much. But I think the most important things are are those bits and bobs that you. Everybody reads about them right now in in the pandemic, but I'm not sure if everybody's doing them. And and those two or three things are getting proper sleep patterns. There's always something else to watch on Netflix. We should really be um, turning off the electronics and reading a book. Mindfulness and or meditation, something like that, but also a hobby. Now... Mm if that's golf or, or wheelchair rugby at the moment, well, we're, we're slightly buggered, as we know. But something that will take us away from the, the current situation, my wife's heavily into that um, adult colouring. And I can just see the, the, the works of art. I know it's only paint by numbers, but blooming heck, the, 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 the quality of stuff that she brings out I'm playing silly video games with my 11-year-old and I'm just loving spending time with him. That's not a hobby, but just being mm-hmm. with my kids is just wonderful. Um, my 11-year-old is an introvert, so he blooming loves lockdown, doesn't want it to end. Yeah, my hobbies are, are reading, really, and keeping fit. So whilst I've been not being able to play the, the, the real game of wheelchair rugby, I've been lifting weights in bed, as I've said. I've been walking with my rollator. And when it's not snowing, I've um, tootled 25 kilometers in my wheelchair up and down my patio. So mm. keeping fit is, is key to me. All of those, those three sort of subsets of things, I think such good advice. And you, you, you started at the beginning by framing it, by giving perspective. And it reminded me, I interviewed Chris Voss, who's a hostage negotiator. And I talked about how nervous we can get before a big negotiation and I always get quite nervous palm sweaty that kind of thing and he said don't forget Katie if you've woken up within 200 feet of running water you've already won it's <laughs> 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 your point about Syria yes. or any water on place yes okay let's move to those quick fire questions if you've got time for yes them. of course I have what would most surprise people about Mark Webb golly well, since I've name dropped already, well, can I? I'll, I'll do two name drops. 
one you've got to be um you you have to come from the 80s to hear or you remember the song but one of my best friends is nick beggs from kajigugu oh kajigugu to, so the song for the non-80s audience is Too Shady Shy, Hush Hush. Hush Hush, I Do I. So that's one. I talked to him yesterday. So that, that that's one. And and genuinely wonderful person. Um, he, well, but in touring days now, he's a prog rocker and a superb bass guitarist. But he's also, um, he was a trained graphic artist before. So he's now, while he can't tour, he's um, doing um, art for people. Wonderful person. So there you go. Best friends with Nick Beggs. Uh, two, I'm descended from George Stevenson, who invented the train. And um, I've inherited not a jot of practicality from him. But anyway, it's a claim to fame. It certainly is. What do you wish you had known when you first started out in your career? I wish two things. I wish I had known how important people were as colleagues to work with as much as the brands. I'm very fond of my time at Disney and David Lloyd and Dixon's. And Dixon's sells some, you know, necessary stuff, but selling ovens, selling land for landlines, then they're not particularly exciting, but it was the people that I loved. And I wish I had known that communications was a career. I think... Uh-huh. Um, when I launched into PR in the early to mid-90s, it really wasn't seen as a career. I used to say that PR and HR are the two careers you go into if you don't know what you're going to do. And essentially, that was how I ended up in it. I just happened to have fallen in love with it when I got there. But it wasn't really a career option. It's turned out to be that way for me. I'm so glad that there's degrees out there now and, and um, uh, apprenticeships and, and it's a growing and accepted uh, phase. And I see lots of journalists moving to the PR side. That always makes me laugh. So um, it's fine because that wouldn't have changed my career path. But it's wonderful now that comms is a, an important and growing profession. What book, or you could have a website, a report, it really doesn't matter, but what should all comms professionals read? Ha! Well, I'm going to cheat here. So um, I'd have two, I'm always going to have two answers for things, it seems. But in terms of comms, I've looked at um, a couple of books that are sitting on my bookshelf, and I can't even remember what they are now, PR for, you know, PR for dummies or whatever. The, the fact is, they're out of date as soon as they're in print. So um, I um, follow various social media accounts that uh, entertain and educate me much more than actually any books. My favourite books to educate people about disability, because they're brilliant books, are the two, and actually now three, autobiographies by Michael J. Fox. Of course, he's got one, he's got Parkinson's, but he's also the actor in um, Back to the Future, among other things. If you want to understand about the, the, the being diagnosed with a chronic illness, chronic means you've got it forever, and how to deal with it, I'd like to think I'd be friends with Michael J. Fox. So I'm going to plug that book rather than any um, PR book. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? Cancel all prejudice. Oh, I'll be, I'll, I'll let me, I'm, I'm holding your coat on that one. That would be mine. 
I'm right behind you. Good, good. <laughs> and finally, this is borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show. We give you a billboard, a sort of metaphorical billboard for millions to see. What message are you going to put on that billboard? If I'm going to post it during the pandemic, I'm going to take a leaf out of Tom Hanks who was taking a leaf out of um, uh, a Persian saying, this too shall pass. I love it. Mark, I don't want to say you've been an inspiration because I'll get myself into trouble, (laughs) but I will say that it has been an absolute privilege to have you on the show. I've loved talking to you and maybe, maybe we'll meet one day out the other side. I would love to buy you a drink. Yay! Tequila. (laughs) So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, it would be great if you could rate it on Apple Podcasts because I'm told that's the very best way of making the show more discoverable for other icy folk out there that might find it useful. To find the links to those films that Mark spoke about and the other resources we mentioned, head over to the show notes at abcomabcowm.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You'll find the show notes there and the links to all our previous episodes too. While you're on our site, you might like to sign up for AB Thinks, our monthly newsletter. It'll give you updates on the show plus other newsy nuggets from the world of comms. We have many great guests still coming up in season five. The behavioural science guy, William Leach, who is the author of Marketing to Mind States, and the co-founder of A Leader Like Me, the IC consultant at Vita Patel. So you might want to hit that subscribe button today. All that remains is to say thank you, especially to everyone who reaches out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn to tell me how much you enjoy the show. It really does mean the world to me to get such lovely feedback. So thank you for being here and for choosing the show. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.